our DT systems, the Rap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way, but it's the Rap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. It's force fetch, baby. It's the number one question we get asked. You don't know how to fix it? Let me help you. Let me get you to your goals. We built a course, bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You talked about a loopy sit. You talked about a slow sit. What about a dog that autocasts? A dog that slips a whistle? These are the fundamentals you're talking about right now, Bob, that not only have I talked a lot about advanced training for dogs, but now we're talking about advanced training for the handler. All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in to part one of the Kevin Chef Advanced Training Podcast. We are about to roll into episode two. Thanks for joining us and uh, enjoy the episode. So we're going to move on to the next area that we need to focus on, and that's blind development. You know, I'm just going to, again, in no particular order, the first one is handling and casting skills. And I'm really talking about, you know, getting the dog to change direction in a refined manner, not, you know, if the dog is constantly scalloping or digging back when I'm asking them to do an angle back cast, um, I've got to ask myself some questions about that, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, if I want my dog to thread the needle on a keyhole blind, they have to have pretty refined handling skills. So I'm constantly thinking about you know drill work I might be doing to refine it. I'm constantly thinking about the types of blinds I'm doing in order to maintain good casting skills. And without trying to get too complex here, when we're doing certain blind training, we tend to undo casting skills. And I think I've mentioned this on this program before. If I do too many keyhole blinds, if I do too many shoreline blinds, what I end up teaching my dog to do is dig back on a cast or scallop. It's just one of the byproducts of doing that type of training. And so some people will go, 
my dog's digging back and scalloping and they should know better than that. And mm -hmm. the honest truth is we taught them to do it. And, and then if it we're really naughty as trainers and handlers, we correct the dog for that behavior when really it's what we showed them how to do. Yeah, so, I, I can uh, definitely say I fell into that category younger in my career. And those dogs that are still with me now, those are the issues we're dealing with, right? Like they're, oh God, they're yeah. damn good at holding lines and they're damn good at digging back and they're damn good at knowing where they want to go. And then when you, you need them to get a little more direction. So it's funny. Yeah. I just, I didn't have as much balance back then as I do now. And, and I've fallen into the same trap myself. Uh, I've made these mistakes. That's why we're, you, you know, you and I are here today sharing this information. Sure. I, and I just want to speak to this a little bit more. I am often asking people to be really patient with their dogs when they're not getting the cast they need for a number of reasons. One, the one that we just spoke about where we're undoing casting skills simply through some of the training we're doing. Two, oftentimes a handler's giving the wrong information. I'm sure you know, you've seen it before where you see somebody doing something, you go, oh my God, no wonder the dog is not doing what they want them to do because they're not giving them the right information. And then they're going to crucify the dog for it. So right. it, it's, I'm very, I ask everybody out there, when you're not getting the cast you want, really be reserved with the correction. I'm talking specifically about getting the dog to change direction the way you want them to. There are so many other tools you can use to get a dog moving in the direction you want them to. You can use attrition, which is the act of stopping the dog, calling them back a couple of steps, stopping again, and reissuing the cast. And you can do that 10 times until the dog goes, whoa, wait a second, Kevin or Bob must want me to do something differently. Let me think about how I can change my behavior to get the results he wants. It's not that they're being naughty. They simply don't know how to respond or I can walk all the way out to the dog. If I don't get the cast that I want, especially if I've even used correction after one or two corrections, I have to go, whoa, wait a second. This dog must not understand what I want them to do. I need to get all the way out there. When I move all the way out to the dog, when I'm within five or 10 yards of the dog, I can guarantee that you're going to get the results you want when you close that gap and you become a teacher in those moments. And what happens over time, especially with dogs that are under the age of four, listen to me carefully. When you have a dog that's under the age of four, be very reserved with any correction because as Bob has just mentioned with his early experiences with some dogs, <clears throat> if we take on an approach where we're correcting the dog every time they don't do something the way they, we expect them to do it, what ends up happening is we our dogs lose trust in us. They will often be able to do things that are black and white, but when we need them to do something that's a little gray, they fall apart or yeah. they simply don't respond in the appropriate manner because they don't trust us. Yeah. Again, you, you might not have a picture on that, but I will paint one for you. If I want the dog to, if I'm doing a cheating single and or blind, but actually let's just say it's a water blind. I'm doing a water blind, a dog that understands black and white will know that they should get in the water as soon as they approach it or go by the water if I point them away from the water. Mm -hmm. But a dog that does gray well will be able to angle into the water. They'll be able to run past the little water before they get into the pond. And that's really tough. 
And if I hammer the dog in early situations that, that to us are black and white and say, hey, you didn't get in the water, there's going to be a consequence for that. Rather than handle them in, just handle them in and use, you know, and don't use pressure. Then what happens is over time, that dog will not trust me in situations that are gray and they will either run and jump in the water too soon or run past the water just to avoid pressure. Mm -hmm. We're getting in the weeds a little bit, but no, you're good. I got to find where I was at. Uh, oh, handling. So we were working on handling and casting skills. So just to, just to close that one out, um, we need to make sure that we're doing some drill work that on a regular basis, or especially when we see casting skills deteriorate, we want to do drill work that redefines what the information means that we're giving with each cast. If we're giving a 20 degree cast, I often need to do drill work that redefines what that 20 degree cast means, because as I said you know, a minute ago, we are always doing training that undoes their comprehension of what that 20 degree cast means. We do shoreline blinds or keyhole blinds. We're redefining that information, that 20 degree cast to mean they need to go straight back. <clears throat> so drill work to redefine that stuff is really important. Uh, moving on to the, the next category, or did you have anything to add there, Bob? No, you're good. Next category is blind concepts. You know, I'm talking about poison birds and other diversions like dry pops, or you know, it could be something as simple as decoys in the field or a holding blind in the field. Could be scent in a field. There's a flyer crate in the field. Could be angling into a pond. You know, there's so many different blind concepts, two really tight blinds, um, so many different types of blinds or situations or elements within blinds that a dog needs to be capable of understanding and to react appropriately in. And what we try to do with blind concept training is isolate each one of those. A lot of times we turn them into a drill-like situation to give the dog more reps in a single lesson so that when they finish the lesson they go wow i just did three poison bird blinds you know 10 yards off or 30 yards off that poison bird i think i'm starting to understand the language and because of the reps i'm i think i understand how to do them a little bit better than when i started as opposed to you know what a lot of people do is just throw one blind in with their training test, because that's what they see at a hunt test or a field trial. So yeah, blind concepts. Want to teach the uh, right factor? Go ahead. Real quick on that blind concepts. Let's let's give some other examples. So like uh, something like a four phase drill or KRD stuff. But you know, a dog on poison birds, right? A, or blinds under the arc. Blinds behind the gun. Blinds short of the gun, blinds deep of the gun, and being able to feel comfortable in those situations would be one thing that I was thinking of when we're talking about blind concepts. You mentioned like angling into the water, but things like angling cover, angling roadways, angling across a hill, all those things are fighting the wind and tucking their shoulder and holding their line on a blind. It's a little bit, I find it to be a little bit easier 
when it's a, a mark for them to drive to that mark holding their line a little bit better. Where on the blind, it's like, I'm not really sure where I'm going and I'm going to fade. And then they take a good cast and then, I'm not really sure where I'm going, I'm fading. And so you're, you're using those factors, which I think we're about to touch on, to, right? Yeah. Yeah. To keep keep teaching that dog the concepts. And that's all I got. But I was just thinking like, yeah, there's there's so many there's some others. things. Yeah, there's so many others. That I got can over. throw a few, a few yeah, go more out. Um, a shoreline blind, a re-entry water blind. Those are two that are you know pretty prominent in hunt tests and field trials. We can almost expect a shoreline blind or a blind where they have to re-enter the water after exiting it at almost every advanced hunt test and field trial. <clears throat> so those are concepts that we work on. And there's a, a, a progression in teaching these things. You know, oftentimes people will say, well, I'm going to do an on and off the point that's scented with the flyer crate on it. Uh, they just jump right into those rather than understanding that there is a progression to actually teaching a dog to do that well. Um, so anyway, without getting again, yeah, um, essentially we're talking about blind concepts there. Fighting factors, as you just mentioned a moment ago, is simply wind, water, terrain, and cover. You know, we're mm -hmm. kind of, and, and angling roads, as you said, uh, angling hillsides, fighting a crosswind, <clears throat> that's something we can do in blinds. And again, we can give dogs multiple reps in a single lesson so that they are not just doing one blind, but they're doing three blinds that might contain a crosswind. And with multiple reps, dogs are able to carry the lessons forward much more easily. They're able to understand what the training was about and become better at it mm -hmm. much better than if we did just do a single one of course we need to do you know number four here is we need to do all of this stuff on land and water and number five again is confidence attitude and balance so we're really talking about the same things that we talked about marking here uh where we can't do five really tough on and off the point shoreline water blinds with a flyer crate sitting there and uh, you know, a poison bird on, on the point. We wanna do one difficult blind, and I'm not saying that's the one you wanna do, because remember I just said there are several <laughs> steps to teaching a dog that. But we let's say the dog is ready to do that. And we do one of those, you know, we really challenge the dog. There will, you know, it could be mentally challenging because we're asking the dog to do a lot of complex things. It can be physically challenging if there's any length to the blind. Maybe the water's a little uh, chilly. <laughs> and then if the dog gets into any trouble, if they get a little undisciplined, if they slip some whistles on the point, if they don't re-enter the pond, now we're likely using some correction, e-color corrections. All of that pressure is building up. Momentum is being destroyed. Confidence is being destroyed. Now we need to back that up with three or four water blinds that are easy. No questions asked. The dog can do it in a couple of casts. And they go, ah, you know what? It's not that thought. I can't, I can do it. I don't need to be afraid of the water. I don't need to be afraid of the blind. This is the type of, of stuff we're talking about. It, and the last thing I want to mention with respect to confidence, attitude, and balance is that you constantly have to be monitoring your dog for quirky behavior that indicates there's a problem with confidence, attitude, and balance. 
So what are some of those? Well, maybe the dog is bugging. You come to line, you're trying to line them up and they're looking around, but they're not looking out at the test. Maybe they're running out toward the retrieve and they're peeking, which is the act of looking back over their shoulders or moving out toward the retrieve, or they're spinning or they're popping or they're freezing on a cast. There's all sorts of, you know, or they're getting sticky on birds. You might say, well, what does getting sticky on birds have to do with losing confidence? Well, oftentimes dogs see that as a way to control the tempo of the lesson. If I hold on to this bird, then I don't have to get on with this test. Mm -hmm. So all of these quirky behaviors, indication of too much pressure, a lack of confidence, and we need to make sure that we bring some balance back by doing stuff that's easy where they're not getting into trouble and that uh, they're not mentally challenged or physically challenged. Hey, how about that Kent cartridge, baby? They got that fast steel 2.0. Hey, if you're not in the market for bismuth, I get it. But fast steel 2.0 is a great option for you and your dog to get more ducks in the bag. Strap them up, strap them in. Kent fast steel 2.0. Let's go. From the duck blind to the holding blind, baby, it's Purina. Our young dogs are eating the puppy blend. Large breed puppy formula should be fed to puppies from eight weeks when you get that little bundle of joy home, that little cuddly wuddly buddy, all the way to about a year old. We want that dog to develop at a good consistent rate. We don't want them to grow too fast, too soon. And so that puppy formula is gonna help accomplish that goal. It's gonna give them all the nutrients to develop their bones, their joints, their ligaments, everything right. Feed that puppy formula till 12 months old and then flippity floppity to the 3020 Pro Plan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're getting close to the end of this list, but the next one is a big one. If you thought the others were big, this one's a big one, and I think it's often forgotten. And before we go any further, Bob, do you mind if I put a little plug in? You go for it, man. I'm adjusting my back. I smoked my back yesterday, so I'm trying to Ooh, stretch it out, buddy. Feel free. There you go. I'm getting old. So, I mean, if if you're enjoying the conversation that Bob and I are having here, and, and perhaps you even feel a little overwhelmed, I want to tell everybody that, you know, I'm a coach. This is what I do. I help people not only hear this stuff, but understand it on a much deeper level more, understand the complexities, the philosophy, the how-tos, you know, you know, sort of the chronology of how you approach these things. And I do that through my online learning platform called Fetch. And what Fetch is, is it's a complete training system from fundamental training all the way into the advanced stuff like this. You get access to a complete library of videos, written information, checklists, diagrams that will help you understand this stuff, flowcharts. It's also an opportunity to attend 
two Q&A sessions a month where I answer your questions in an online format. You get to hear the questions that other people are asking that you might have never even thought to ask. It's going to expand your knowledge, your understanding of how to train a dog. And also, I do webinars monthly, and I tackle each one of these things that we're talking about today and others and break it down into into bite-sized pieces that you can understand and put into practice. I want to continue educating you to become a much better, more efficient dog trainer to help you achieve your goals. And then lastly, you have access to me at any time. If you have a problem, if you have a training question, you can reach out to me through the platform and I'll get back to you with a video message or we'll schedule a telephone call or we'll schedule a Zoom call. And I'll be able to use my whiteboard behind me and diagram things for you and answer those questions. So if you're interested in something like this, my Fetch program opens for enrollment. It's a limited period of time that enrollment opens several times a year. It will only be open for a couple of weeks. So keep your eyes open. If you want to learn more, go to my website, www.theretrievercoach.com. And even if you're not interested in Fetch, there's plenty of free resources there. Go check them out. Look for that free resource button at the top right-hand corner or the blog button you can read all sorts of articles and watch videos there february 19th very good and this show will come out before then so february 19th if that's interesting to you and you want to you know jump on his program i encourage you to do so um let's get into our next section which is really where you and you know myself try and help people with our seminars and whatnot handlers handling skills so the dog might be doing great but the old human end may need some help. Yeah, there's all, there is several. Well, actually, I have 10 things on the list here. <laughs> <laughs> because this is one of the most important ones. If yeah. you've got this, you know, as people say, if you've got this, this complex airplane you're trying to fly and you don't know how to operate the system, so you don't know why the systems work the way they do or how to fix a system that's broken, what the heck are you doing? Right. I mean, you're spending all sorts of time, energy, resources, money to do this. You want to be successful. You're feeling frustrated. You're not seeing success. Why is that? The re you know, what's happening? It's probably happening because of one of these things here. Sure. So let's talk about them. The first one on my list, again, these are in no particular order. I kind of made this list a little quick, but it is short and long-term planning. Bob alluded to it a minute ago, you have to have a two-week training plan in place every two weeks as to what you're going to cover over the next two weeks. That is extremely important. Why is it important? Because when I have a two-week training plan, a number of things are going on. One, I am theming my training, meaning I know that if I'm going to cover check down birds, I'm not just going to cover them right at uh, once. Sorry. I'm not just going to cover them once. I'm going to cover them three times. If I'm going to do shoreline blinds, I'm not just going to cover them once or re-entry blinds. I'm not just going to cover them once. I'm going to cover them probably three times, two or three times. It also means that if I do shoreline blinds, I need to make sure I hit the balance. What is it called? Competence, attitude, and balance mark in that department because my dog might be challenged by shoreline blinds. And so they're mentally challenged. They're physically challenged. They're, they're also feeling pressure from the e-collar potentially. 
I need to back that up with some simple water blinds. And if you're not doing a two-week training plan, you're not theming your training and you're not providing balance. You're basically you throwing things at the wall and hoping they stick. Hoping they stick. It's too random. As I think I might have pointed out at the beginning, your training plan is random mm -hmm. and you're not helping the dog connect the dots or hitting all of the notes you need to do, which is, you know, sort of my next point about a two-week training plan. Once you complete that two-week training plan and you're creating your next two-week training plan, you're looking back at your previous training plan and going, well, what did I cover in the last two weeks? I need to cover new things in the next two weeks. Even if my dog didn't do that well at them, mm -hmm. I need to move on to new things. Because again, it's about balance. If I focus too much on poison birds, what happens, Bob? We they, create problems. We create problems. We create flaring. Mm -hmm. We create dogs that are overrunning short birds. And so we've got to have balance. And so the next two-week training plan should cover other things. And, you know, I'm looking at my list here that I'm creating for here today. And I know that I've got to hit these other points. So I'm looking for areas in my previous training plan where I could be causing problems. For instance, if I do too many shoreline blinds or too many keyhole blinds, what happens, Bob? Dig back dig back and scallop. Well, maybe I need to do some drill work in my next two-week training plan to redefine or to maintain casting skills. This is why training plans are really important. My grandpa used to say, proper prior planning prevents piss-poor performance. Awesome. That's <laughs> absolutely true. Where are we at here? So short and long-term planning. Um, number two, Progress and performance evaluation. So this is really, you know, I was sort of alluding to this in the previous point. And that is when I get done my two-week training plan, I want to just make some quick notes about, you know, how did my dog perform? Did I see any quirky behavior? Do I feel my dog's attitude is decaying anywhere? Do I need to do something to bring balance to the training? So I've already kind of alluded to that in the previous lesson or the previous point, but that's really where I'm talking about here or what I'm talking about here. Point number three, analyzing tests. Well, oftentimes people will train in the training group and somebody will set up the test and the, they get the test all set up and without even studying the test or you're at a hunt test or a field trial and you've got a test in front of you. They don't spend any time analyzing the test before they get their dog on the truck. I see this on blinds all the time. I'll be, I'll be the person setting up the blinds at a, at a workshop. I'll get it set up. I'll point out where the blind is. And the first handler is running back to the truck already to get the dog. Mm -hmm. What a huge mistake that is. And you have to become skilled, not just skilled, but get in the habit of doing this before every test. You evaluate the test. You decide, you know, you figure out what factors are going to influence the dog in the test. You just, you, you point out where the elements are in the test that could cause difficulty, like a scented area or a holding blind in the field or an old fall. If you're at a hunt test or field trial and the judges run a set of marks and then they move their line and they've picked up all the tests, picked up all the gun stations and everything, and they run blinds across the test. 
you may not be aware of where those scented areas are from the marking test or where the where they retrieve birds from if you really don't pay attention. And what can happen in those areas? Dogs slip whistles, they their momentum breaks down, they might not handle very well, or it becomes a factor that influences how the dog will handle out of that area. And so it may change what information I'm going to give the dog in those areas with each cast. I might need to use my voice. I might need to give the dog a bigger cast. I might need to take a step. Sure. So analyzing each test, whether it's a blind or a set of marks, is really important in order to make sure that we develop a plan as to how we're going to execute the test. Or if it's a marking test, I need to identify the concept so I can know what cues I'm going to use when I'm showing the dogs the gun stations or sending the dog for a mark. Do I want to put my hand in or not put my hand in? Do I want to send with a lighthearted tone or a loud commanding tone because it's a punch bird? Right. These analyzing the test helps you develop a plan. And so get in the habit of it, learn how to do it, study it, and become yeah. proficient at it. I think that really, I kind of talked about the next point at the same time, which is game planning. And that is once you've analyzed the test, you need to come up with your game plan. So I'll add something to this that I think I f I'll, hopefully it'll be funny, but when people come and train with me or me and you get together and we're going to hang out and train, me and you are going to probably stand and look out into the abyss of a field or a pond and we're going to move 10 feet to the right and we're going to move 10 feet to the left and we're going to move up, we're going to move back. And we're just going to like stand there and just like stare out like we don't know what the hell we're doing. But really, we're looking at everything. And it comes down to that game plan and your two-week plan of where's my theme? I understand what I want to accomplish today or in the next couple of days because of my proper prior planning. But now I'm looking out into this field and instead of just going, ah, just throw one there, throw one there, put a blind there. Ah, well, yeah, we'll angle that one back. It's standing and, and being focused on what's out in front of you. Where's the wind? What's going to move dogs? What are they going to learn? How are they going to find this bird properly? You know, what are the factors? And then let's put a mark there. And it's going to influence this mark over here or the blind over there. And that's the concept I'm trying to teach. I'm not just walking to a field or a pond and going one, two, three, four. We did four marks today. It was great. So it comes back to analyzing the test and making a game plan. And then your number one, you know, short and long-term planning. So every day, I feel like it's the funny part is people will come and train with me and be like, man, he's just staring, standing up there like, Dinking around, like no, no you've got you've got a lot going on, don't you, Bob? <laughs> yeah, I can't have a conversation and focus on what I'm trying to set up. Is basically what I'm saying. My ADD yeah. will kick in. I've got to sit here and think and feel the wind and and adjust. And I feel like too many folks, even with their advanced dogs, are just going, "Yeah, we did a couple marks and blinds today, but what did it do?" Yeah, and. I, I remember that pressure, you know, when I was a professional trainer like yourself, I remember that pressure on a daily basis. I usually felt more pressure at that time during setup than any other time. And I also felt yep. the pressure of my 
like clients behind me going like, let's go, let's go, let's go. No, because what we set up is as important as anything else. It's the you reason know? we're out there doing it. It's the reason we're out there doing it. Exactly. I want to mention, because when you were talking, you brought up one other thought here. Um, uh, game planning. When I'm talking about game planning, I'm also talking about, well, mix those two together, I'll start over again. When I'm talking about analyzing the test and game planning, when I'm analyzing the test, not only am I discovering what concepts are out there, what elements are going to affect the dog, but I'm coming up with a game plan as to how I'm going to deal with any issues that come up when I run the test with my dog, you know. If they don't stop and scent on the blind, how am I going to react? If the dog um, overruns the check down bird, how am I going to react? And Bob, you're a professional trainer. You know that you're not going to react the same way with every dog. With a young and experienced dog on a check down bird, you might have gunner help. With an older, more experienced, but an uh, undisciplined older dog that overruns a check down bird, you might handle the dog back into the check number. So it it's having a game plan put together includes that identifying the pitfalls, identifying the potential behaviors you're going to, you might see from your dog and coming up with a game plan in, in, as to how you're going to tackle each one of those things that could happen. I know that's hard to do when you don't have a lot of experience, but if you don't practice it, if you just run to the truck and get your dog, you will never get there. You'll never get there. When you're at a hunt test or a field trial, do you spend time sitting in the gallery analyzing why dogs are doing things and then think about, well, if my dog did that, how would I work on that when I go home? Or how would I address that if it happened? Yeah. How, that is that's your opportunity to learn and grow and become a more effective dog trainer. Next one on my list is communication on the lines. You know, as a, as a handler, it, you know, we've already talked about how situations where I need to communicate with my dog on the line can be very complex. If the, if the marks are tight or if they're at different depths slightly, or, you know, that if the blind is just off of the gun station, how I communicate with the dog right there on the line is the whole difference between winning and losing. I remember, you know, in one national retriever championship that I was running, there were only two dogs at the end of that national retriever championship that were in a position to win. I had one of them and another handler had another. And all I had to do was get this bird, this last bird. It was the last bird of the 10th series. It was all I had to do was get this bird. I knew I was ahead of that other dog. But I decided that I was going to make sure that the dog, it required the dog to get in the corner of a piece of water and then go, uh, go just a little further. It wasn't even a really long mark and just go grab the bird and come back. Well, I decided I was going to ensure that that dog got in the water. And what I did was I overhandled. I made sure that the dog got in the water. But you know what I did at the same time? I talked them out of that damn bird and I end up not winning that national. It came down to my 
whether it was my lack of experience or my lack of understanding what the goal really was, I needed to just think in that moment, the only thing I need to do is get that bird. It doesn't matter if the dog runs around the corner of the pond because it absolutely didn't. If the dog would have ran around the corner of the pond in the 10th series, that would have been small potatoes. I right. would likely be sitting here with another national uh. ribbon on the wall. That's a story. I, I hate to get into stories like this, but understanding how to communicate with the dog online and developing some skills to do that, practicing it, being able to calmly talk to your dog and understand what's important and how to get them to think about where they're going. Talking them into things is a real awesome skill. Yes, so, you want to say something. Yes, please. So with what you just mentioned and this line item, communication at the line, and your next line item, line mechanics, when we go back to the top of our list of what we talked about, this is advanced training. All these skill sets that you and your dog are developing to become an advanced dog suck if your fundamentals and obedience and groundwork sucks. If your bird handling skills are not where they should be. If you're battling, pushing and pulling at the line, I don't care how soft you say easy and or communicate one way or the other because the dog is not giving a crap because your fundamentals and your foundation is weak. So as we're talking about all this good killer information, you got to remember that to be at this place, we've got to have done a really good job in the beginning or else we can tell you that this communication is important, but your dog is more worried about jumping out in front of you and looking off to the left and looking over to the right and staring straight up at you and doing really wonky things is no good. And so we can tell you that this line item is great and it's very important for these reasons, but your, your foundation is so important. So important. Yeah, you're, you couldn't have said it better, really. It, I can go out and do a hundred advanced tests, marking tests or blind tests, especially marking tests. And if I don't have what you just talked about, a dog that will sit there calmly online and work with me, I don't have a team relationship with my dog. Right. And the opportunity to teach a dog those advanced skills is lost. You will never achieve it. And so not only do we have to put a good foundation under the dog at the beginning, we constantly have to monitor behaviors as we're training because, you know, obedience will deteriorate. Dogs will creep out on you. Dogs will bounce around. And especially, you know, there's a lot of dogs out there today where it's constant management. Yeah. And if we overlook that stuff, at any time, we're just not going to, we're not doing effective training. We, we will never get there in the advanced training. And so monitor their behavior, recognize when you have a problem, get out of advanced training situations and into drill work, yard work, whatever it takes to focus on that particular problem and elevate the standard in that particular area in this case we're talking about behavior on the line or discipline on the line sitting there and 
working with a handler. Get back to the yard. Don't overlook it. Just because you worked on it back in the basics doesn't mean that you don't work on it at all times. That's why it's up here at the top. Fundamentals was right at the top of the list. <clears throat> Where are we at? I mean, line mechanics and... We have line mechanics, but it's, it's kind of the same same thing. But line mechanics is understanding cueing. We've talked about this already. Understanding how to pivot, target, that type of stuff. That's where I'm going with that. Making sure that the dog pivots well with you. Making sure, and you, you just alluded to it as well. Making sure that you can get them to target correctly. Oh, understanding how to swing from one gun station to another. And sometimes those swings are huge. You know, so how we move or communicate with the dog in order to get them to swing in really wide open swings versus situations where we have really tight gun stations can be totally different. The communication that goes on there can be totally different. Understanding it, practicing it is really important. There was one other thing I wanted to mention. I think I was talking more about head swinging, you know, dealing with some of those issues that come up where a dog doesn't watch the bird or doesn't watch, you know, sometimes they'll really watch the first long bird, but then they immediately swing to the flyer station. And you know that flyer station's right behind the holding line and they don't see the other long bird. So mm -hmm. teaching dogs to watch two long birds before the flyer is, or short mark is really important. Communication in the field. And that really, in that line item, I'm just really speaking to handling skills. People are absolutely horrendous at delivering proper information to dogs when they're handling a dog in the field. Mm -hmm. So, you you know, I've, I don't, don't remember if I've talked on this program. I may have, but whenever you're giving the dog a cast, there are always three pieces of information that we're giving the dog with every cast or considering giving with every cast. The first one and easiest one to talk about is the angle of the cast. What what angle are we bringing our arm up off of 12 o'clock in order to tell the dog what direction to head in? <clears throat> the second one is step that we add to the cast. It's not a forward step. We never step forward toward the dog, although I do still see a lot of people do it. It doesn't do anything. It's a lateral step. We want to make sure we're taking a lateral micro step. Sometimes, not all the time. When you add a step in with the cast, it will affect the direction the dog heads in. And sometimes it's inappropriate to add a lateral micro step with the cast. And you have to understand when it's appropriate or not appropriate to give that step mm -hmm. in order to get the dog moving in the right direction. And the last thing is voice. And we have to make a decision. Is it appropriate to use voice or not appropriate to use voice? Voice will do two things. One, it will increase the momentum the dog has toward the retreat. And two, it will affect the direction they head in. It will increase the rotation. I know this gets a little complicated, but it increases the amount of rotation that the dog has when you give it the cast initially. So in other words, the dog's sitting there looking at you. When you put your arm up and use your voice with the cast, your dog will begin the cast by rotating first and then beginning to head in the direction it chooses to go. That rotation at the initial part of the cast increases. The dog turns further around as they take the cast. So they're going to be heading in a slightly different direction if you use voice. And we have to anticipate that. Mm -hmm. So 
handling a dog is not as simple as putting up your arm and giving them a cast. Every time I stop my dog, I have to analyze what angle am I going to get the dog? Am I going to use voice? Am I going to take a step? Are these things appropriate? And then are there elements or factors out in the field that are going to affect the dog's behavior that I have to compensate for? That's right. And there's other skill sets in here of how am I handling in training and how I'm handling to win or pass a test. Absolutely. So being able to develop that skill set in the split second decision making that it takes. Like, I think some people, like I'll get home from training and we will, I'll be so mentally exhausted because you're standing there training 20, 30 dogs. And every time you pull a dog out, your brain is firing at full pace to make sure that your timing of your corrections, your timing of your whistle, your time, your just brain's on fire. And it is mentally taxing and you have to be focused from the minute you walk to the truck to put the collar on to the minute you put the dog back in the truck. Now multiply it times 30. When we're at the field trial or the hunt tests and you are like, you just made a comment about like, are you in the gallery BSing or are you watching the dogs? We're watching the dogs and we're going to think, what is my dog's, you know, strengths and weaknesses? How do how can I tackle this to, I'm going to say win, but winning is passing and winning is winning. Um, but yeah, you're, you're handling it. I, I want people to understand that too. What I mean by how I handle in training is different than how I'll handle at the test in training. I may put the dog in a position that then I'm going to have to get them out of so that they learn how to get out of that situation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Or I let's say we've got a dog who's scalloping a boatload and then it finally takes a cast, but it's not exactly what I wanted, but it had finally did something. I'm going to let that sucker roll and roll way offline and carry it. And then I'll get them back, but I'm not tweet, 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 unless I have to. And that dog needs that kind of thing in the moment. So you're, you're thinking on your feet, you're always on, and you're always trying to be one step ahead of what could be around the next corner with the dog. That to me is a good handler. Instinctual, boom. Very quick reactive time and knowing what's going to happen before it happens. Absolutely. And I'm going to add to that because you, you make some very good points that brought up some thoughts in my head. You know, why did I put this on here? Because I wanted to point out that it is a skill. These are skills that you're working on. How do you work on this one in particular? It, it, you work on this in two ways. One, Every time you stop your dog, you pause for a moment and you ask yourself the questions that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. What angle should I give? Should I use voice? Should I take a lateral step? Are there elements out there affecting my dog that will cause me to make adjustments to that information? Or is my dog exhibiting a behavior that I need to react to by adjusting one of those three pieces of information? 
Once your dog is stopped with a whistle, when you're handling them, once they're stopped, you have all the time in the world to ask those questions and to analyze the situation. And if you get in the habit of doing that, that's when you become a good handler. That's when you start delivering information appropriately. Every time you stop your dog and you analyze how your dog reacted to the information you gave them with the previous cast, that's when you become a good handler because you start to make adjustments to the information based on the results you got. I'm going to say, and the second way you're going to get better at this is just like you just mentioned, you're sitting in the gallery at the hunt test or the field trial and you're watching dogs run blinds. You're watching handlers handle the dog. And you watch what happens when they give information. So you watch the hand, you see the dog sitting in the field after the whistle is gone. You look at the handler and you watch what information they give with the cast. Did they take a step? What angle did they get? What did they use voice? And then you look at the dog and you say, what results did they get? Could they have changed one of those pieces of information or two of those pieces of information to get better results? What pieces would they be? And you ask yourself that over and over and over again, and you learn how information that you're giving affects the dog. That's when you become a good hand. Agreed. As well as going to a Kevin Shep workshop or becoming a member of the Fetch program. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Okay. Timing is, you know, mostly about blowing a whistle. You know, when you, you, you're, you, you know, many people will say to me, they'll, you know, I I always send out a, a questionnaire before a personalized training workshop where I ask people what their problem areas are. And some people will say, my timing stinks. I, I can't seem to blow a whistle at the right time. And as a handler, I have to make that part of my training plan. In other words, if I'm working with a student that I'm coaching and they're working at the advanced level, I always give them the assignment of doing one or two what I call handler blinds each week or over the course of two weeks. And that handler blind, it's not meant to teach the dog anything. And they have to be careful that they're not crucifying the dog for making a mistake in these situations. This is not about training a dog to do something a certain way. It's about teaching myself how to run a complex blind. Mm -hmm. So I ask them to set up blinds with tight corridors. They might have a keyhole to them. They might have to navigate a certain hazard on the way to the blind. They might have to get on the corner of a mound and come off the corner of the mound. They may have to go past some, a wall of bushes on one side, but stay within a corridor. In other words, maybe they put a little piece of flagging tape five or eight yards off the corner of the bushes and say, okay, I'm going to force myself to stay between the ribbon and the bushes. And so what they learn to do by setting up these quote unquote handler blinds is how to become better at blowing the whistle at, a, in, in, at the right time. They learn how to give better information with each cast. All right, I'm going to stop you real quick. And it's going to bring us home again to my earlier stopping you is 
sometimes people's timing sucks because they didn't have good fundamentals with a good go, stop, come, that stop part. So that dog slips that whistle just enough or it's just loopier or whatever. So those fundamentals, those mechanics of earlier now is not setting up the handler to learn how to have good timing. Does that make sense? So oh, they're trying absolutely. to read the dog, but then the dog isn't helping them either. So no. it, it's, it comes back to those mechanics again. So that's the fundamentals are so dang important that if you want to become an advanced handler, you got to have a dog that's helping you out too to become advanced. Another great way to support the show, and if you dig it and you want to rep it, it's LoneDuckOutfitters.com. We got hats, t-shirts, hoodies, all that good stuff. Even if you got a little lone duckling, a little baby on the way, you can get that onesie as cute as can be. Little kid's gear. But we've also got other things like bumpers, launchers, e-collars, anything you need to train a dog, you can find it at LoneDuckOutfitters.com. We're here to supply you so that you and your dog can get ready for duck season. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you, you talked about a loopy sit. You talked about a slow sit. What about a dog that auto casts? A dog that slips a whistle? These are the fundamentals you're talking about right now, Bob, that not only am I talk, have, have I talked a lot about advanced training for dogs, but now we're talking about advanced training for the handler. Mm -hmm. If we don't have a solid foundation, if we don't have strong fundamentals, we can never become better at our job. Our dog can never, never become better at their job. We will never be better than mediocre. Right. So that's the true fact. And we're gonna come to, in our next, next topic is gonna be issues and problem management after this one. And we're really gonna drive that point home there. The next line item here is execution. I think that I think we've really covered that, you know, how we're going to, I forget what that one was to be honest with you, but I think we've sort of elaborated <laughs> on execution all the way through here, how we're going to, how we're planning, how we come up with a game plan as far as what we're going to, how we're going to react to the different things the dog does, how we're going to develop good timing to get the, through these keyholes. Oh, execution also referred to, now it's starting to come to me, is before you run the blind again, Come up with a game plan to, to navigate that corridor or that danger zone. And there is a specific way to navigate that danger zone. You know, I, I can't remember. It might be a free resource, but I had a, did, did a, um, an article about, you know, I called it Get Your Dog in the Box, which meant, you know, if you've got to get through an area where you can lose sight of your dog, there's always or almost always the a best way to get your dog through that area. But it requires you to execute the plan. And what do I mean by that? We will often formulate a plan to run a blind, but we will fail to execute the plan to run the blind. We will say, well, I want to get the dog in this spot so that I can handle them away from the danger yet they don't get their dog to the spot where they were going to handle their dog through the danger area. And so then they end up handling their dog into the danger zone. Might, might be a little messy there the way I explain that, but essentially people will come up with a plan to run a blind, but they won't execute it. 
They're right. just watching the dog run. Mm-hmm. They're going, oh, well, I like the way he lined, or I liked his momentum, or I liked that he was going to get in the water, you know, rather than execute the plan. And eventually that just gets them into trouble somewhere else. And they end up paling for that reason. Okay. So force yourself to execute the plan is what I'm trying to state there. Last one is education. There's always new methods coming out as far as how we train dogs. Even today, I still get educated. I still go to workshops and seminars that other people are conducting. I love talking to people like you and, you know, asking the amateurs that I work with, what do you do in order to get your dog through this situation? Or what's your favorite go-to drill or you know, or people will just share information. So mm-hmm. constantly reading, seeking out new information, watching people that are really good at something, trying to figure out why they're really good at it, maybe even asking them what they're doing, going to workshops, being a part of, you know, Fetch, for instance, where there's constant education going on is really important if you want to get better at this, if you want to improve your skills. You owe it to your dog. I just did a two-lesson webinar on e-collar use. My notes on that were 10 solid pages of notes on using an e-collar. You think, well, it should, should be able to get it in a few paragraphs. I don't know, bro. I Just knowing you, I'm looking at my notes that you sent me. I can see you doing 10 pages. <laughs> <laughs> Not to say that I didn't condense it, you know, when I was doing my points, but you want to, you owe it to your dog. You're asking your dog to do really complex things. You're putting pressure on your dog day in, day out, whether it's mental, physical, or Mm e-collar. Why should you make it tough on them? How selfish of you if you can't get your butt out there and get educated, learn to do things a different way, a better way. So I strongly encourage everybody to get educated, to find good mentors, to work with good training groups, to get educated so that you can bring good information and be a mentor to somebody else within your training group. And as Bob does here, thank you very much, Bob provides Lone Duck Chronicles to help educate people. This is a huge asset. I I get comments from people all the time, oh, I was driving eight hours across the country and I just put Lone Duck on so I could, you know, and I'm just fascinated. The information is awesome. So keep doing what you're doing and everybody out there make use of it. There's lots of free stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Last point, I know we're probably getting really long. I don't even know how you deal with this. But... So here's my thought. We'll do a two-parter. You know okay. what I'm saying? So let's just keep rolling so that we don't have to worry. Absolutely. It'll be a two-parter. Yeah. We're almost done, so we're going to finish this up. Oh, you're good, man. Issues and problem management. So as I've mentioned, a couple points, a couple places in our long discussion here, it's our job to constantly be aware or have our eyes and ears open to the potential for problems or to see issues or breakdowns in areas such as fundamentals, or quirk where we see quirky behavior or identify them. You know, if we have a slower loopy sit, how many times do we have to see it before we realize we have a problem? Probably only twice. If we have one pop, sorry, go ahead, Bob. No, yeah. So one thing that I would say is when you start identifying these problems, a loopy sit or popping, and you're applying pressure in the field over and over and over and over again for a loopy slow sit, 
that's going to affect a lot of other things out in the field. So now we're creating every blind to have negative things happening because of a problem that we could fix in a drill format outside of field work. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. That would that, that would definitely be one of my biggest points that, you know, we're going to get at several points here, but yeah, if you try to fix a problem in your advanced training, you know what you're going to do? Exactly what you just said. Screw up your advanced training. Right. You're, got, you're going to, that dog is going to get corrected so many times on a single cold blind for a loopy sit that they're going to start associating pressure with either an environment, like for instance, if we're making a lot of corrections in the water or a lot of corrections uh, on a blind, the dog will start associating pressure with that particular environment, whether it's the water or blind or poison bird or something like that. And so what, what ends up happening is instead of fixing the problem of loopy sit, the dog has no idea what they're doing wrong because they're just getting corrected at every turn. Right. And their attitude, confidence, and perhaps they may even develop an aversion to that particular environment or situation in the future. Exactly. So you don't want to try and all, like, I would say 80-20, you don't want to try and tackle these problems in the field when it could be, let's go to a, a drill that they know and understand and tackle it there. So a loopy sit, we could do a single pile and do pile work and stop them on the way to that pile several times. And and that way they're not seeing a cold blind and being overly intimidated because they're about to get pressure in the field because you haven't tackled the loopy set. That's kind of yes. what I'm trying to bring up. You're going to create more problems by trying to fix problems in the field work. And, and you won't, and, and bottom line is you won't ever fix that problem anyway. Right. You won't. Your, your, your chances of fixing a persistent problem like this in the field is near zero. Mm -hmm. And all you're going to do is create several more problems that you have to fix mm -hmm. and could, could, could cost your dog several months of their of really good training time, a whole season. So don't do it. Identify it, get out. As you said, go back to the yard. Think about the things that you did at a very early stage that got you to the place where you wanted to be in terms of a standard. You know, if I, as you said, if I wanted to get my dog to sit quickly rather than loop or sit slowly on a blind, where did that start? It started during basic obedience where I had a lead on the dog and a pinch collar. And not only was I correcting the dog, but shaping some behavior and showing the dog how to get their butt on the ground by steering them with the lead somewhat. And then I went to e-collar conditioning, still had a lead on the dog and developed another tool that I could use to improve the quality of the sit. And then I went to uh, pile work, just like you said. So I could form, use what I used in the past to get the quality of work or the standard that I wanted with respect to that behavior. And then from there, I could go to some other drill work that's still in the yard, but increases the level of difficulty by adding some birds to the drill in the yard, a casting drill in the yard that could provide me opportunities to make corrections and elevate the standard in these more difficult environments, yet not overwhelm the dog so much that they can't be successful. The same could be said for, and this is a big problem I get questions for all the time, my dog is animated online, they're creeping on the line. Hell, there's no way I can fix that in an advanced marking test, and all I'm going to do is create more problems with marking tests. 
Mm-hmm. So um, get to the yard or get or, or shrink the environment so you can get more reps in and remove some of the stimulation that is causing the dog to creep. And the reason why you want to do that is you want to have some success. If there's nothing but failure all the time and nothing but constant correction, the dog may never see the pathway to doing something right. So let's do some walking singles. Let's only make them 25 or 30 yards long. Let's use a bumper and not a bird so there's less stimulation. Let's remove the gun. Let's remove the hey, hey. Yep. So we're minimizing the stimulation. So we might get some correction, but we'll also produce some success. Yep. And then we'll gradually introduce more stimulation in that same environment. And hopefully we're able to develop the standard we're looking for. And then go back may, out. And, 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 and then go back out. Yep. And maybe we're even going to use a different tool because I'm getting a lot of, again, a lot of emails, a lot of questions about, hey, I, I'm using the collar, but it's not seeming to have an impact or maybe it even makes the problem worse. So maybe you need to use a different tool. Maybe it needs to be a pinch collar. Maybe it needs to be a wonderly. There are very good reasons for that. I don't want to get into explaining them here, but you might be using the wrong tool. When you get to these environments where you get more reps in, where you simplify things, then you can analyze the situation much more easily and make adjustments to your training plan, your your plan of attack to fix this problem or manage this problem. Very good. Okay. You want to add anything to that before we get into our last point? Hmm. I'm going to say no. I think I interjected okay. what I was thinking. And, and I think a lot of this, as you're as you're advancing yourself and your dog, I kept going back to the fundamentals. Go, stop, come, basic obedience. And it's it's the easy stuff, but it's not always the fun stuff. It's fun to go come up with a creative training plan for the day, the week, the month, and execute the fun stuff. And it's fun watching your dog kick ass at it. But little things that start to slip, like your line mechanics, like your communication, and things like that, if you allow those things to slip, those fundamentals, then you're advancing into an area that is fun, but now we're losing ground elsewhere. So just that's kind of my thought is always go back to making sure that the little things are right so that the big things come easier. The little things are right so that the big things can be easier. Yeah, yeah and you'll make a lot more progress that way. And it, I guess the other thing I try to remind my students of is you got to hold yourself accountable. You have, you know, I, I'm tired of hearing people holding the judges accountable or the training test accountable or the dog accountable. That's nothing but BS. Look in the mirror because that's typically where the problem is. Hold yourself accountable for doing the right things, for maintaining your own standards so that you can get the standards you want with your dog. Absolutely. Last one on my list here is attitude, confidence, and momentum. And I've spoken to this already, so I'm going to get into it a great deal. But, you know, we've talked about how if we do hard things, we need to do easy things. If we work on one concept, we have to recognize where that concept is going to cause problems with other concepts. If I do too many check down birds, 
my dog's not going to do punch birds very well. If I do too many punch birds, my dog's going to overrun check down birds. Um, if I do too many really tight marking tests, my dog's going to get nervous, potentially get nervous, potentially not, potentially marking accuracy is going to deteriorate. Potentially memory is going to deteriorate because confidence is going to deteriorate. And so I want to open up those, some marking tests and guarantee success, not just in a singles format, but in a multiple format where the dog is, has to mark and remember three birds. But I want to make that test so easy that they can't fail. And there are ways to do that. And I think I've even alluded to it in some of the other episodes here. Absolutely. Without getting into that too deep, because I think we have touched on it quite a bit. It's something as a trainer in this overall plan that we have for working on advanced training, we constantly are focusing on it. It's not something that's forgotten or only looked at when we see quirky behaviors come up. When we're doing our two-week training plan, and our second, our, our following two-week training plan, it's, you know, one of the things on the checklist, we have to remind ourselves, are we doing enough in this area to maintain balance, a good attitude, confidence, and momentum in our dogs? I, I, I don't know if you want to add to that, or maybe we should just sort of sum up this whole experience here we talked about today. I don't have anything to add to that. I think... Well, I guess I do. When, first off, one of my favorite compliments when I run a hunt test is when judges or people in the gallery will say how happy my dogs are, how much they like me, and, you know, that they just look like they're enjoying their job. And that comes down to what you just talked about, you know, the attitude, the confidence, the momentum dealing with the problem solving to get the dog to overcome a quirk and get them back into that attitude, confidence, momentum. Like, you know, I'm okay sometimes trusting the process that if I did something wrong or, or too much pressure or whatever, this dog is just struggling in a particular moment. That doesn't mean the dog's bad. That doesn't mean I'm bad. It just means we're having a moment and in time through a, a strong process and plan and trusting that process and plan, those things will get better and those things will come. If a dog is popping, it doesn't mean I have to, I have a bad dog and it doesn't mean I need to do everything in my power right this minute, this session to fix popping. Because what you're going to do is you might fix pocket popping that session, but it's going to come out somewhere else. So you just have to take, take it as it comes a little bit and know that in two weeks, a month, that'll be okay. We're going to address it. We're going to, we're going to think about it. We're going to know it's there, but then we're going to not just, I, I, I personally don't just hammer down on it or else I, I could create more issues. And that's to me how attitude, confidence, and momentum is is maintained is by not nitpicking the dog and allowing maturity, allowing these lessons to just come together and they're soaking them in through time and a plan and it all comes out in the end. That's kind of, for me, that's how I maintain attitude, confidence, and momentum. 
just don't nitpick the dog. I let them develop. Yeah, it's, I think you're right. You have to have some confidence. If you have a, a training plan, you know, and you trust that you can develop or modify a training plan so that you can come up with an overall procedure for dealing with a particular problem rather than, as you said, just immediately hammering down on it. You go, oh, that just happened. You know, you mm-hmm. say, oh, that just happened. Or, oh, that's the second time that's happened. I need to think about that. I don't need yeah. to react right now to this situation, but I need to think about it. Correct. And trust trust that you can go, wait a second, um, you know, what environments am I seeing this in? Do I need to just adjust confidence and attitude? Mm-hmm. So that means just backing off a little in this environment? Yep. Or do I need to go do some drill work? It's okay to, it's okay to chill and, and give yourself some time to think. Yeah, I agree. And I think the reason I'm bringing this up is it's as it popped in my head is, you know, I'm sure you get this just like I do, you know, my dog's doing this. It's like, well, how, how many times have done it? Well, just today, like, bro, we don't have a problem. It just happened today. You know, as it, like you said, as it becomes a habit or it's popping up more and more frequently, sure. That's a different thing. But when you're creating a more advanced dog, they're not going to have a good day every day. It's impossible to have a good blind and a good set of marks every day because we're challenging them and advancing. They're going to make mistakes. That's how they learn. And it's how we react as handlers and trainers to keep developing that process of growth. But so many times I do get messages like, he sucks at marking now. It's like, he just have a bad day at marks. He just had a bad day. You know, Michael Jordan wasn't perfect every game. And you can always make, you know, if, if marking is bad, you can always make adjustments. That's not a big deal. Yeah, exactly. We'll make adjustments. And I like the point that you made that not every day is going to be a good day. That is absolutely true. Whether we're human or we're a dog, pressure is what makes us better. If you think of a bodybuilder, a bodybuilder doesn't sit on the couch and eat potato chips all the time and feel good and get more muscle mass. They stress their body on a regular basis. They get out there and they pump iron, not because it's fun, but because it's hard and it gets results. It stresses the muscle. It may even damage the muscle to some degree in a measured degree. It's, and then that muscle repairs itself to become stronger, bigger, more powerful. And that's how a bodybuilder achieves their goals and they take days off as well in order to allow that repair to happen. It isn't like they're constantly putting that body under stress or they work different parts of the body while that other part is being repaired. And and in this case, we're talking about a dog's brain. We give them stuff that's hard. We let them process that by giving them a break from it. We give them some easy stuff in the same department to maintain confidence. And then we work on something else so that they can let that go for a minute and focus on something else. It's very similar to that. And humans are the same way. And we're not going to get better at anything unless we work hard. We stress ourselves out a little bit. We understand that being uncomfortable is okay. When you grasp the fact that being uncomfortable is okay, you're making, you're going to make some progress. I love it. We just had a nice little therapy session. (laughs) 
therapy's good. Hell yeah. yeah. Let's take a second and recap real quick. You know, the beginning part of our conversation, you had seven things to begin and, and talk about advanced training. And so I'm going to hit them again. Fundamentals. I revisited throughout this whole episode or now probably two-parter about how important our fundamentals are to have strength and a foundation to build your advanced work on. Marking development. We talked about blind development. We talked about drill work. And for me, this is me being honest, drill work bores the hell out of me. It's like the reason I didn't love going to high school and college. Like that's like sitting in a class. You're like, oh, I really got to be here. Yeah, you really do have to be here. And we've got to do it because it gives us, again, a piece of that foundation to build upon. The fun stuff, the sexy stuff is fun and sexy. But if you don't have the fundamentals and the foundation that drill work and obedience and structure and communication, you know, the hard, the sexy stuff, you'll make it harder on you and your dog. And, and just quickly to add to that, drill work provides reps in a short period of time. That's why drill work is so beautiful. That's why it accomplishes the things that we need to get done. We can't do that in a when a dog only gets to do something once or twice in the learning moment. But if we could do something 10 times in a lesson, wow, that's just like so many more opportunities to learn. Keep going, Bob. Yep. Then you know, handlers, handling skills. And Kevin had a great discussion on educating ourselves, improving ourselves, go to seminars, go to workshops. Um, maybe you have someone in your community or within a two hour drive that you can, that is a professional trainer and is a reputable and good one that you can sit there and sit behind that person and watch them and watch the dog body language. So much of, you know, what I kind of talked about earlier is watching the dog and knowing what it's going to do before it does it. My reaction times of blowing a whistle, my reaction times on giving a correction or choosing not to give a correction. That comes from experience. And most people that listen to this have one or two dogs. That's not enough to, to really wet your whistle. So by going somewhere where you can watch 20 or 30 dogs do a training day and sit back and go, hmm, all right, I would do this. Oh, he did that, you know, or just educating yourself and putting yourself in a position to be a sponge and learn and listen and watch is imperative and ask questions. Issues and problem management, if you think you're going to build a dog, from eight weeks old to four years old and have no problems or issues pop up, it's impossible. It's impossible. Absolutely. So that is is a really important section that we covered. And then do you have anything to add to that? I was just going to say every dog trainer has to be a problem solver. Bottom line. Yeah. Bottom line. And then at the end of your advanced training, looking at your dog and saying, I've got a dog with a good attitude, has momentum and confidence. And managing it. 
and managing it. Managing it with our training plan, identifying quirky behavior, uh, making sure we have a combination of hard needs. That's really important. Absolutely. That was a great summation of that. It made me feel good because it helped me think that maybe we did okay on what we tried to deliver. (laughs) (laughs) I think we crushed it, buddy. I hope you all enjoyed. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'd like to make one recommendation here because I know that, you know, we've spent two hours talking about this stuff. There's a ton of information. I'm going to challenge everybody to listen to this episode more than once to get a note paper, note paper out and a pen and make notes because we laid it out pretty, pretty well. I mean, we didn't give all the details. It's impossible to give all the details here, but this is a start. Make some notes and then challenge yourself to try to apply some of this stuff. That's what's really going to help you move forward in advanced training. If you just listen to this and you shelve it, if you don't put it into practice, if you don't schedule it, if it's necessary, you're going to stay stuck where you are. Couldn't agree more. I think this is an episode where people do need to have a notebook out. And then if you don't know what we're talking about or you don't, well, we talked about marking development but I don't know how to even set up marks. Like, we'll write that sucker down and let's remember that we need to learn that, right? Or join Fetch. It's all yeah. there for you. <laughs> there you go. Um, so yeah, th- this is a great episode where we didn't give all the drills that you can do and the we didn't do deep dives on each of these. We 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 just laid it out there of, things to be considering of, things to work on, and now it's your job to go and absorb what those things could be. Well, Kevin, February 19th, he's reopening his fetch course. We'll have a link in the description for you to check out his website and the previous episodes that we've had him on. Kevin Owens, just pop back in. You want to say hi to everybody real quick, Kev? Good to be back. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin was babysitting my, my buddy Jack Jack. So he couldn't be on the episodes with us, but everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Links are going to be in the description. I'm going to give a selfish plug real not real quick on March 2nd and 3rd. I am having a seminar in Camden, South Carolina. It's a all day Saturday, food, beer, bonfire, Q and a ton of fun as well uh, as a half a day on Sunday. It's going to be a great time. You can sign up send an email at loneduckpodcast at gmail.com and Kevin will hook you up with all the information and da-da-da-da-das, yada-yada-yada, as Seinfeld would say. But thank you all for tuning in. This has been a really good, informative podcast. Kevin, I always appreciate you jumping on here with us and taking time out of your day to spread some knowledge. Thank you very much for having me. And it's always a pleasure spending time with you guys. It's always a big time. Well, I also think we're going to do it this summer again, because I know you'll be back in New York. Yeah, definitely. We can make time for that. Let's do it. All right, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll catch you on the flip side.
Hey, do me a solid. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, join patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. If you do it before September of 2023, you're going to enter to win a hunt with me and Kevin and a bunch of other Patreon members down in Missouri. We're going to smack some ducks, have some fun, do a seminar with our dogs and have a great time. But jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Links in the description and join the community that helps me help you help your dog. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.